to the lost souls, the disintegrated spirits, the wanderers, the dreamers, and the seekers. Welcome to the Embodied Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Danielle McGinnis. Our work in this podcast will be to foster healing, transformation, self-expression, creativity, and the development of consciousness. So with our intentions grounded firmly, let's settle in and do some integration work. Hey friends, welcome back to the Embodied Podcast. It has been almost a month since I recorded an episode on the show. I have been traveling, I have been sick, and a whole plethora of things have come up in the meantime that I I haven't really been able to get behind the mic. So I'm really excited to present today's episode to you guys. It's a little different. I've really never done something like this on the show, and I think it's a really good intro back into the Embodied podcast and getting to know me a little bit. So in today's episode, I actually have taken the audio from an interview from one of my really good friends, Jennifer McMaster, and her great friend, Shannon Gale, and they interviewed me about what it means to work in the ways that I do as a somatic experiencing practitioner and my perspectives on different Jungian and archetypal work and how that incorporates into navigating the human experience. And so I'm so excited to launch this interview. For those of you who have been listening to the podcast for some time, I really haven't done an episode like this. So you guys can get to know me a little bit better. And for those who are just tuning in, again, it's an intro to um, the things that are really, really important to me, the things that light me up, the things that I'm passionate about, um, and why I'm really driven to do the type of work that I am driven to do. So I really hope that you guys enjoy the podcast. I am hoping to be back behind the mic much more till the end of the year and going forwards into 2023. So with that being said, enjoy the show guys, and I can't wait to continue conversations on this podcast. So enjoy. I would like to welcome Dr. Danielle McGinnis. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us today. Jen and I are so excited to chat with you further about your line of work, what your passions are, and honestly, I'm so interested to find out more about you and how you got to where you are today. Thank you guys for having me on the show. I I always enjoy podcast interviews because... It's, it feels like a mutual dialogue, so I get to know more about you guys as I share more about myself. So thank you for, thank you for inviting me on the show. Well, thank you for, for coming. This, this is, um, Jen and I always, we always, we always want to know how to enhance the human experience through a holistic approach, health, wellness. We're very into the mind, body, spirit, and I, I know you do a lot of work on this and um, I'm just interested to know more about you and what led you to what you're doing today. Okay. As of now, I have my own practice and I work as a somatic experiencing practitioner, but I take a depth psychologically oriented approach. So I don't, if, if you've heard of Carl Jung's work, depth psychology kind of bridges out of out of that field and so really what depth psychology is it's an inclusive lens of the unconscious the unknown the mysterious self-regulating capacity of the human psyche and somatic experiencing in particular is a nervous system physiologically based trauma renegotiation methodology. And so my past career, not too long ago, but in the past, I was a doctor of physical therapy. I worked in the clinic treating patients in a traditional 
Western approach. And it was really incredibly frustrating because people would come in to the clinic and, and almost be very identified with their dysfunction. But also not only that, there was there was clearly this separation between psyche and mind and the body experience. And so it was almost as if I, I was taught and expected to treat the body as as an object to manipulate as opposed to this incredible, mysterious revealing of something happening. And so I left my clinical practice as a physical therapist and transitioned and used somatic experiencing to really bridge the body piece and then added on the depth psychological piece. And so I'm in my third year of my PhD in depth psychology. So I really have this, this Western approach to medicine and treating the body as object. And then this depth psychological approach really bridges mind and body. And it's a more somatic approach and meaning that somatic looks at the body as through the eyes of the subject. So it's not just this objective the experiment that we're like looking at and manipulating as if we're in a science lab. It's nowhere in the experience and, and perceiving through the subjective experience and including that in, in the practice as well. And so that's actually what I'm really, really passionate about is bridging the gaps that I saw in Western medicine as a practitioner into, um, you know, the, this, this approach where mind and body aren't separate. Right. They are, they exist on a spectrum and they're not split and separate as many of us operate as if they are. So you're absolutely right. And you touch on so many points. Jen and I were in public health for 10 years plus, And I feel like we both saw the same things, you know, clients coming in, I don't want to say label, but it's, it's, they're coming in with a chronic condition and it's almost we are taught in western society to treat you know that condition but when you say putting the mind body together you're really it's individualized you're really looking at the person as a whole and i think your clients would really i would think benefit more the mind body right um as opposed to just looking at the physical components yeah um you bring up a really interesting point there because the thing I love about the depth psychological approach in particular is that Jung declared himself, even though he was a psychiatrist, he declared himself as like an empiricist. And so he acted as if he was the scientist of the psyche, but he, he discovered that it wasn't just the personal unconscious, that there's this thing that's called the collective unconscious, that there are patterns throughout human existence that reveal themselves through individuals. And so what I love about that is that you can see in somebody's neurotic suffering or their chronic illness, a pattern that has existed for many people throughout humanity. So there is a personal layer there that's very individualized and very unique to your personal experience. But also there's a connection to this very unique patterning that has connected us back to our ancestral roots. Mm. And so we recognize that maybe our experience of suffering doesn't mean that we're the only person that's ever been through this type of suffering and we're not so isolated in that. And to feel held within a pattern of humanity, I think is incredibly important, no matter what you're up against. I think that's like an existential experience. Like we need to know that we're not the only one that's been through this particular pain point or this particular piece of suffering, because if that's the case, then most likely it gets way too big and then it gets pushed into our unconscious and then it starts to autonomously drive symptoms and dysfunction and we have no idea how to relate to it. And so we can look at these patterns and see what, how we can best approach this pattern 
by studying different patterns such as that throughout humanity. I hope that that made sense, but I, I think it bridges the personal and the collective really it nicely. It does. It really does. It does. And it brings up a question. So, okay. Is your approach to healing the individual trauma different or the same as healing the collective trauma? Or do they go hand in hand? Hmm, that's a good question. I think that we can see collective myths play out in personal individuals. Um, I think we can see the effects, let's just say, of this particular image of God that has persisted throughout Western humanity affect the personal individual in so many different ways, right? But I also see sim similar patterns. So like when you're working with somebody on, let's just say like a mother or father complex, by watching the individual go through that, you can have a better idea of how to trace patterns collectively. So I think that they're connected, but I don't really have a particular answer for your question other than that. I think that they interweave into each other. I don't think, again, I don't think they're separate. I think that they influence each other immensely. I like that. I think it's it's nice to not feel alone in suffering and pain and trauma and feels nice to be able to heal something beyond ourselves, that we're doing this work for ourselves, but then more broadly as well. And I feel like it normalizes it a, like a little bit for the client. I don't know if that's the right term, but you're not alone in this journey. You're not mm -hmm. alone. Yes, yes, for sure. I think a lot of people, when they come up against really intense symptoms, I personally, as a practitioner, try to look at that as some type of initiation that's trying to happen psychologically. And so if you study initiation myths or if you've ever gone through a particular initiation yourself, it helps gather your resources for that journey and, and what that implies. And so, yeah, I do think that it, it, it normalizes the experience and not, not saying there's not as much wrong as we think there is, but I think that there is inherent meaning in a lot of the things that we go through in our lives. And if we don't have a way to attune to the deeper patterns that have existed throughout all of humanity, we start to lose that, that meaning and the purpose. And, the, and that's when we start to get really squashed into our initiation, I guess. Yeah. And, and tell me, like, this is so fascinating to me. I, I feel like when I met Jen, I don't know, 11 years ago, she really brought the spirituality um, more into my life. I feel like that was a big, a missing link, you know, cause we're taught, you know, we're both kinesiologists. We're taught like in healthcare to treat, to treat. Right. And the two of us are, are always looking at prevention and helping. And I just, mm -hmm. as, as your former career as a physiotherapist in a clinic, and now you're doing your PhD, I, and then you've also said through your own experiences, really tell me how you got into this through personal experience. Cause I just find this fascinating and you're passionate about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's quite a, quite a labyrinth. Uh, <laughs> I would say the first thing that comes to mind is so going through physical therapy school again, it, it was like, you know, taught through the eyes of scientism it's like body as object you know manipulate the body to make the body feel better and it's really interesting because when I was going through physical therapy school I was actually suffering and I really didn't even have a conscious awareness of this at the time but I was suffering through really intense eating disorder patterns but I think that that eating and exercise disorder I think that that the fact that I wasn't even aware that it was disordered in any way shows the immense amount of dissociation between mind and body. And so for me, basically through that addiction, driving myself almost to complete destruction to that point where I'm like feeling, trying to feel so alive in specific ways that my soul is dying inside. 
And so I think that that particular addictive compulsive pattern and that dissociative element between what what my consciousness was and where my body was at, I think really opened this door into, okay. So like when I like legit hit rock bottom of that experience, I was kind of left to kind of put the pieces back together. So it really felt like, okay, so if I'm gonna live in this, this place of separateness, then I'm gonna hit the bottom and completely separate and get dismembered in the process. And this whole process since has been a process of remembering. And I feel like the paths that I've walked down, the mentors that I've worked with have been individuals who have helped in that remembering process to help put things back together. Right. Where at once they were living very, very separate, so. And when you initially started that journey, Danielle, who was it that you connected with in terms of mentor or coach or provider (laughs) or all of them? The the first coach I ever hired, I'm actually going to marry in six months. So I love that. I love it. That is awesome. Yeah. My fiance actually was synchronistically, he just had gotten out of the military and started his own work and he launched this program called the clarity academy i had no really no idea who rick was at this point and um just in this like rock bottom moment like completely moved to a city eight hours away didn't know anybody and i'm like oh clarity would be nice (laughs) so i signed up for the clarity academy i was the first person to sign up for his first program ever So I think that there is this synchronistic component. And then after going through the program months later, our paths kind of crossed again. And now we're getting married. (laughs) I I love love. I love that. Um, Jen has introduced me to the work of Rick Alexander, your fiance. And I just, again, like such incredible work he does. So I just think, yeah, what a great power combination. Like it's, it's, wow, that's awesome. I love that story. Yeah, yeah. So Rick was very, very crucial. And I think that Rick actually held a very immense projection for me Um, initially upon starting our relationship. um, I always looked at him as if he was like the the creative one, the poet, this like very mystical-like person. And... I think despite the rocky um, experiences that we've had, I think we've both held up really beautiful mirrors so that through Rick, I've been able to heal that, that deeply wounded masculine part of myself that would basically charge my way through anything to the point of almost killing myself and my body and remembering that that creative masculine that connects me to all of those ways in which I can create and help people and serve people out in the world. So I think that Rick was really, really crucial in, in holding up a very honest and gentle mirror to, to some of the most wounded parts of me. And I mean, it must be fate, um, but regardless of what it is, I'm eternally grateful for that. I do think that people spontaneously pop into your life when you least expect it, that might open up this, this, this seed of remembering. So yeah, Rick was very crucial in that. So you hire a coach who happens to turn into your fiance. Whoopsies. (laughs) I love it. I love that story. Um, And then from there, where do you go? So you've connected with a coach. And then I know that you're, you work with the somatic experience analysts. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I don't think it's common for people to hear about somatic experience and analysts. And I think that they have an incredible place in our healing journeys. Yeah, yeah. So somatic experiencing, like I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a 
it's a trauma renegotiation methodology that is bottom up and it focuses on the nervous system. And when I say bottom up, it's not, it's not particularly focused on mental constructs. It's trying to speak the language and follow the different ways in which the body speaks. And traditionally in, in traumatic experience, sensations, images, behaviors, affect, those, and, and meeting and story, that definitely plays a part. But for somatic experiencing in particular, we're working with those different channels of the body. So sensation, images, different behaviors and movements to try to renegotiate different thwarted fight or flight responses or freeze responses. So we're, we're trying to get into those, those deep implicit memories where maybe we don't have explicit memories of trauma, maybe we do, but really with somatic experiencing, we're working with those implicit memories. Your body feels a certain way or you're noticing a particular sensation every single time you go to do X. And we start to work on that. And with somatic experiencing, really what what we're trying to do is we're trying to uncouple things that get overcoupled. Um, so I have this nice slinky that I always keep at my desk. Um, but Peter Levine, the founder of Somatic Experiencing, always describes the nervous system as, you know, this. It, we're constantly in this state of like expansion and contraction. And so our nervous systems are constantly moving in this way. And typically when we move into states of higher activation or sympathetic charge, we start to move faster. And trauma happens when we get so fast that our system collapses or our system kind of like fragments. And so when our system collapses, we're trying to uncouple and pull apart the things strand by strand of like, what's in this collapse here? Like what, what is stuck in this collapse? in trying to get those stuck pieces to like remember how to work together again slowly. And then the parts that have been fragmented or completely dissociated out, we're trying to pull those into the system slowly to like remember them and help them expand and contract together. So with somatic experiencing, it's not, we're not trying to sidestep the trauma, we're actually going into states of activation, but we're doing it in this very, very slow titrated way so that you can, you can actually experience the felt sense of your body knows exactly what to do when it's contained appropriately. And that's usually what's missing in trauma is containment, support, scaffolding. Everything happens too fast, too much, too soon. And so it's really this slow process of pulling apart or putting together pieces that have gotten stuck. So that's somatic experiencing in a very quick nutshell. But I find it really fascinating because it's it's incredible to if you if you really slowly deepen into the body, see how deep certain memories are held. You know, they're I've worked personally in my in my somatic experience with with even pre-verbal states of terror and it's really weird because you don't have these explicit memories of being terrified as as an infant no um but they they still are there and as a practitioner at, going through my own somatic experiencing but also as a practitioner you want to treat as if it is real, it, it doesn't matter if it really happened in real life, the body is, is trying to tell a story. And so often we try to put the kind of like the habitual ego story on pause for a little bit so that we can kind of tune in to that, that deeper somatic story that's trying to unfold. And then just by following the threads of that, you can see, you can see a really really interesting pattern unfold. Wow. 
And Danielle, when you talk about trauma, I just want to get mm-hmm. clear from your point of view, because there's a lot of buzz around trauma, PTSD, and the onus is often on the person experiencing the pain and trauma to prove that they're suffering from the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and there can be some division around what trauma is and what constitutes trauma. In your work, when you mm-hmm. use trauma, how do you use that word? I think trauma is any experience in which the body has lost its capacity to adapt to some type of stimulus, whether it's an internal or external stimulus, it's lost that inherent rhythm of expansion and contraction. And so what might be traumatic for some person might be totally fine for another person. It really just, the the nervous system is very, very individual. So I, I think to put a definition on what is trauma and and say like okay well that person didn't experience that so they're not traumatized like that that feels a little too categorical for what i've seen the mysteries of trauma to be but again that like fast and quick definition is something akin to like an experience that overwhelms the system's capacity to adapt so something that happens too much too fast or too soon for your system's capacity to regulate itself. I like how you describe that. I like your operational definition of trauma. I feel like that really allows (laughs) Mm -hmm. the individual to be there and let them express what it is they're feeling about that situation, um, which is often missed, I think, in the medical model where we've worked for most of our lives. Um, So Mm -hmm. I like to hear that. And then being able to even go back to those things that are pre-verbal, Um, or that you can't really articulate. You just know that you're having a response, a charge, an activation Mm -hmm. to something, and you really don't know why, and it's okay to not know why, but your experience of it is real, so let's work with that. Mm -hmm. Very inviting. That's really validating too, right? Because we all have our own experiences, an individual experience, right? Nobody knows what other people have experienced exactly. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's validating. Yeah, and so tying this into the Jungian analysis piece, analysis in particular focuses on what Jung called the process of individuation. So individuation is not individualism. It's not becoming this kind of like secular hyper-individual. It's actually pulling away all of the particular roles that keep us away from the deepest essence of ourselves that would prevent us from serving humanity in a way that is truly reflective of our own unique soul. So many times we often learn early in life to split off the essence of ourself to contribute to the collective. But The argument is, is like, are you truly contributing to the collective if you aren't, if you're like completely fragmented, if that comes at a cost of having a chopped up inner life, like, are you truly serving and putting positive ripples out into humanity? And so individuation can be this process of learning how to be uniquely you, process as much as you can, the unconscious contents and widen your consciousness enough so that you can serve in a way that that affects the collective consciousness as well. So again, coming back to how that kind of bridges in into trauma in particular, the depth psychological analysis approach, like Jung's argument is that there's a there's an autonomous nature of the psyche. So the psyche will will like it will split. It doesn't you don't have to be a psychotic or a schizophrenic individual to experience splitting in the psyche. Things get dissociated often. And Jung's argument is that the, that dissociated material 
has an autonomous nature to it. And that will drive different symptoms into a person's life to get their conscious awareness so that it can bridge your consciousness with the unconscious. Because if you try to live your life in one particular way and you deny or repress or continue to split off all of that content and continue to do that, that content is creating a vacuum in the unconscious. And typically it takes something like a a midlife crisis or a really intense body symptom or, you know, this really intense eating disorder to like wake you up to recognize that like your little ego piece of consciousness is just a, a small little piece in the totality of what is. And so, yeah, like I think analysis in particular is a little bit more of an interpretive lens in bridging that kind of psycho-spiritual component. But for me, I feel like, again, psyche and body are not separate. And so you can bridge this nervous system, physiological way of working with body with this psycho-spiritual autonomous nature of the psyche and really get this holistic picture of someone's experience. So that's kind of where those two worlds intersect because I think the psyche as well as the nervous system also goes through periods of expansion and contraction. So I think there's something about this like rhythmic nature that is present in both spirit and matter. So there's something there. So just to clarify, what would a a session, Mm. an analyst session look like for somebody? Because for me and Shannon, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, it's very important to bridge mind, body, essence. That's, you know, Mm -hmm. for us, that that is what happens and that is holistic health. So it sounds like it, it ticks a lot of the boxes, all of the boxes. So what could somebody experience in that? Again, going back to it, I know in our medical model, we don't talk about it. No. It's not a traditional mental health and or physical modality. So I think a lot of people listening would be like, well, what is it? What do I have to do? What does it look like? What would it feel like? Could you explain that experience? Yeah. So it's really interesting because Carl Jung and Freud, Freud is very popular in Western medicine Mm -hmm. because he was mostly a reductionist and we have a lot of reductionistic, personalistic ways in treating the individual So actually Freud and Jung were in correspondence for a while and Jung started to to discover this kind of like mystical, mythical layer of the psyche and Freud was like, no, the Oedipus complex and it's all about your infantile wish fulfillments basically. And so it created this, this split between Freud and Jung and you can see this actually still play out because a lot of different Western medical models are way more accepting of Freudian theory in that like reductionistic, personalistic way of looking at psychology. And Jung has often been pushed out of Western academic psychological material. I think Jungian materials is is making a resurgence in, in modern times. I have my own theories about that, but I won't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but I think that that's, that's partially the reason why um, this, this psychoanalytic approach isn't super well-known or super popular. And because Jung said that we have to go to the places that we're most unwilling to look, and that's where you're going to find your gold. And so a session an analyst session, most commonly, very, very often, we're going to look at dreams because dreams are basically dreams happen, dream times happen when your ego is offline. So dreams can give you a very interesting picture of your unconscious without it being clouded by what you think is happening. And so oftentimes a session will be about looking at the dream. Of course, Freud 
looked at dreams too, but he also said that dreams were just wish fulfillment and things like that and personal desires. But Jung said that they're, again, these dreams are coming from these very deep layers, this like the deep substratum of psychic material to move an individual towards wholeness, even if that evokes a nightmare or a dream that is like so off the wall weird to your ego, the dream can indicate a picture, a symbolic picture of where where your psyche's at. And so oftentimes in, in analysis, you'll look at dreams to orient to where the individual is at psychologically. To look at dreams through a Jungian lens, you have to have a, a symbolic eye you can't say like, oh, I dreamed about my ex last night. And so there must be something happening with my ex. We're looking first at the dream as if the dream, every single figure in the dream is a part of your own psyche, an, un an unconscious masculine or feminine, or if an animal shows up, like this animal can be symbolic of instincts. And so we're looking at the dream through the symbolic eye. And that takes a lot of practice to learn symbols and myths and stories like that. But when I work with dreams with, with clients, I also add the somatic piece. So I'll go into just like embodied active imaginations with the dreams. So I'll like put the individual back in the dream space and see how they're their body responds to being in particular spaces like that. And if there is something that shows up in the dream that is so disgusting and intolerable to their current level of consciousness, that's a doorway. I'm not shoving people into intolerable experiences. Again, it's all about titrating. But again, if it's about looking where you're least willing to look, the dream is a really beautiful doorway and an invitation that that gives you a place to go there. So Jung termed the the term shadow material as well. And so that shadow material, I often think of the psychological shadow as the the parts in in your psychological and somatic experience in which you have repressed, split off, you deny, that can't be a part of your, who you identify as in everyday consciousness. And so a lot of Jungian analysis also works with shadow material as well. So does that clear as mud, right? Clear, clear as mud. <laughs> what, I, what I gathered there was using dreams in an analyst session to orient the, mm -hmm. the person and the practitioner to an experience to bring the unconscious to the conscious. So therefore you can move into wholeness. So shining mm -hmm. light on the shadows or the parts of ourselves that we repress or we disown. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then I'm guessing that all informs us as to our patterns of behavior and ultimately what we're creating. Yeah. And you can also, you can, you can see like perhaps where you, I mean, you never really know, like if you're looking for certainty, I really wouldn't recommend going down the Jungian path. <laughs> um, really the, the depth psychological path is about increasing your capacity to be with the mystery of what is. Mm. Um, if you're looking for certainty, it's not a path that I would go down <laughs> because you're, you have a lot of like, well, I, I actually don't know what that is, but if you don't know what that is, you could, you know, put it on a metaphorical shelf and just hold it there and see what happens to you in that process. What does knowing about it change? It can change a little bit, but for me, I see, I have this, I've developed, let's just say I'm, I have developed and I'm developing this level of psychological faith that if I turn towards what's presenting itself and what is, whether it's intolerable to me or not, and I can contain that adequately, it will change me. It will change me in some way, shape, or form for the better or worse. I think when you get into better or worse, now we're making value judgments and that's coming from ego. So, I mean, it, it just is 
what it is. And so I think a lot of this is about trying to increase your capacity to be with that. There is a part of this experience that we have no idea what is happening here, why it's happening. You know, like you couldn't possibly pin that down. I know that so much of science tries to do that. Religion and theology tries to do that. And I think it's really important that we start to develop a maybe a reverence or respect for there's a lot of this that we do not know and might be unknowable. And wouldn't it be great if we could increase our capacity to be with that? I love that. I feel like we're in a crisis of hope globally, collectively. Um, and to hear you use words like faith and, and mystical unknowns and things like that, it, it excites me that there's space for that somewhere and that we can start treating people and working with people and helping people grow and expand and heal and step into fullness and wholeness um, in a variety of ways that's beyond what might be currently subscribed to or prescribed to us. Yeah, and this is just my soapbox, but I feel like sometimes faith gets mixed up in belief and belief systems. And I think beliefs are, are often very slippery because you can mentally believe something but have no solidarity or resonance in your body about that thing. But I think working with material and letting that material change you or having exposure to that those things in which you do not know, the unconscious, it creates this felt sense of experience. I have experienced it, therefore I know. I don't need to believe it. I don't need to convince you that I believe it, but I know. And the more we can develop that, that felt sense, it gives us a state of solidarity so that we're not projecting our beliefs onto each other and they're just empty concepts or ideas that actually mean nothing and they have no experience behind them. We can actually have this embodied level of experience. So I, th I think that true faith comes through experience personally. So yeah, the felt experience, it's one of the greatest things working with my clients, um, particularly one-on-one -on -one where they can really feel it like, oh, that's true for me. I feel it mm -hmm. here. And yeah, and you, there's no convincing required. It's exactly it's known. Okay. Action or sitting with it, being, feeling that and allowing it, which is so empowering for people. And you know what mm -hmm. I think it is too, what you've been saying, both of you, it, it's that respect for oneself, like trusting yourself, your inner knowings, right? Like it's almost, we want to have that disconnect possibly because it's fear or it's too hard to surface it, right? It, it, we bury these, mm -hmm. the trauma, the emotions, the experiences. It's just too hard to go there. Whereas it sounds like your services, they really help really look inward, even through the dream work. Like if it's our unconscious telling us mm -hmm. these, these stories or experiences in our dreams, it's us. And, and it sounds like you help on like reveal it or unfold it to really look mm -hmm. inward and go, okay, so if your body is experiencing, you are feeling this, listen, trust. So let's look at this. And mm -hmm. it's almost getting yeah. unstuck to me. Like it just, because people can get stuck, right? And it's listening and yeah. trusting ourselves to move forward and grow. Yeah. I think that you make a lot of really great points. I think the role that I serve often, I think is is just a guardian of the nervous system and a guardian of of the psychic, like creating psychic containers that feel held. Um, but that that stuckness that we feel, I think sometimes when we try to move in certain directions in one particular way or one particular fashion, and we're trying to like control that and manipulate through ego, we do that at the expense of the soul. So we trust ourselves to take care of ourselves, but we don't trust the unknown. We don't trust our, our deeper nature to like move us towards this place that is meant for us. 
And I think that a lot of my work is like trying to provoke the soul's movement. And I do think that that takes working with a lot of fear of the unknown and working with that, how you're identifying yourself, your ego, your I, and, and again, seeing all those things that are intolerable to that. So if you have this deep fear of that, that you don't know, or you have this deep fear of being humiliated or embarrassed, or if you have this deep fear of being wrong, or you have a deep fear of things being out of control, like that, that's the starting point. Like we want to, we want to work there and ease our way in to, to those deeper layers. So yeah, I think that you made a a lot of really good points there. Yes. Unsticking the soul. Yeah. And I, I work with a lot of women um, after baby. So I really help mm. them through mind, body, spirit, mm. getting themselves back to who they are. Um, and I find, and Jen and I have had a lot of conversations, it's, it's, you lose your identity. It's one of the most beautiful things becoming a mother, but you also, you put your, your life, your, I'm going to say a lot of your spirit on the back burner your physical health sometimes takes a toll too and it's just the progression of the pregnancy after the sleepless nights the stress the upregulation. Um, i think a lot of women would benefit from your services just knowing that they're so stressed out they're at a loss they're feeling stuck it's this self-identity you know, that they go through, how would, um, a woman connect with you and would she book a one-on-one? Is there, um, like a series of programs? What would that look like? Yeah, I think like, so a lot of the work that I do now has been just focused on intimate one-on-one sessions in particular and doing somatic experiencing sessions. So you would just go to my website and, and just put in an application and, share a little bit of your story and I would connect with you there. And I I am doing smaller group things. So I'll take certain texts that have been really beneficial in, you know, my unfolding and my journey. And I'll do a workshop series on that text. And then my fiance and I, we often host these these book clubs. So there are group containers, but if you're really wanting to dive into, you know, unpacking your, your own personal initiation, like what you were talking about with, with those particular women, I mean, any death and rebirth is an initiation, no matter what, whether that's a literal baby or you're birthing something into your life typically there there's death inherent in birth. Um, so certain parts of you die and transform. And so usually individuals who are going through those deep initiation processes, I would recommend intimate one-on-one containers. Right. That's a nice kind of gateway to sort of have a look at everything what's Mm -hmm. going on. And then those groups sound amazing too. You know, once they establish um, that connection with you. And then it sounds like book club. I mean, a lot of women would love that too. A lot of men would love that too, I think. (laughs) Yeah. The book clubs and the workshop series, it's really about like cultivating communities that can have conversations at a level of, of depth and they can learn to speak this like symbolic language, this language of the body. So it's really about sharing experiences, reading the text, seeing what the text brings up in you and guiding and supporting and listening that's what the group containers are really about it's really beautiful to cultivate communities and recognize that there are a lot of seekers out there there are a lot of people who are interested in in expanding into the mystery i think it that it does give me hope for humanity when i um, engage in different communities like that because it i don't know it's just really it makes my heart happy to know that people are are willing to go there, are willing to ask questions, are willing to learn. I think that that's really nice. And that they're safe spaces. That we're, yeah. like you said, we're seeking, we're growing, we're evolving, we're expanding. And we, one of my missions is to normalize that. 
that we are evolving and we can evolve quickly or slowly and we can have, you know, fits and starts of it. Uh, the idea is to be engaged with that process of becoming ourselves. And then knowing that there's safe spaces where we can connect, I do believe that we learn about ourselves in relation to others. It's great to be reflective and, and journal and write. And then there's this other thing that happens when you connect with somebody else and you share that and you're witnessed in your life experience and you allow them to see you and be seen. It's this beautiful thing that I think moves us. And you talk about that safe space, right? And I think that's what we're all trying to create here and help our clients develop that safe space, right? So they can move forward and really listen to their, their inner selves. Mm-hmm. This makes me excited, guys. So Danielle, okay. who accesses the somatic experience and the analyst work? Men, women, both? Very, very neutral. Really doesn't matter if you're human. You can, you can engage with yourself. That's actually what makes us uniquely human. Dogs can't do that. So, right? <laughs> um, so the difference between, you know, everyone can do somatic experiencing work. I think that it's contained and titrated and, you know, everyone has experienced trauma. We can do that, that trauma work. Sometimes going into different layers of the unconscious, you know, Jung warned about this in his writing that like, you know, if the person isn't presenting with, with adequate boundaries around their sense of self, it can be sometimes really dangerous to go into the unconscious. And so sometimes going into the unconscious, we can do different layers of shadow work, but getting into those kind of deeper autonomous natures can be more fragmenting and harmful for the individual than helpful. And sometimes one of my favorite Jungian authors, Marion Woodman, she said that like, you know, sometimes if, if, if people are like happy carrots, just let them be happy carrots and go along their way that not everyone needs to dive into the existential questions of what it means to be human. And not everyone's going to go through initiation processes with, with their own psychological material. And so just making sure that there's adequate boundaries and containment around the sense of self is really, really important when you're engaging with unconscious material so can uh, those, because of that autonomous nature. Go ahead. So can those happy yeah. carrots move into wholeness without doing that work? Is that possible? Well, if you ask them, they'd probably say they are in a state of wholeness, <laughs> but it might be an illusion or a naivety or something akin to that nature, but it might be perfect for their particular lifetime. So... I think it's really important for individuals who are called to do that work and do have the adequate resources and the capacity to do that. I feel like it's our responsibility, but I do recognize that like a lot of people don't even have their survival capacity on lock. You know, so many people are disadvantaged and, you know, in really, really tough spaces that if you don't have your basic needs being met, I mean, you certainly don't want to dive into the unconscious because it might unlock a psychosis and it can be really uncontained. And so for those individuals that do have access to containment, to resources, you do have the opportunity to put those ripples out there, but that's I think it's an illusion to think that everyone has to or everyone should. So so if you're feeling the call, if you're feeling moved to do the work, shadow work, somatic experiencing, analyst work, really anything that is introspective and, and connecting with self, um, to answer the call but with awareness and curiosity to see where your limits are. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think that we have a very interesting myth playing out culturally around breaking limits and like not having limits and this like quantum shit that gets kicked around. And it's like, I don't like, we are not even good with the here and now. So like, maybe we shouldn't 
go too fast into the quantum. Like maybe we should honor the limits of our experience and be maybe a little bit more conservative than what we think we are. That's not denying the expansive capacity of, of nature itself, but also I think that that word limit is really, really important. Um, yeah. Knowing your limits, knowing your boundaries. Yeah. Yep. I like it. And when to push them. Yeah, I think it's really easy to identify with psychic material too. And you can kind of see this with like the new age push into spirituality where it's not necessarily this conscious relationship to spirit. It's an identification with what's happening and you're getting infused with all of this spiritual energy and it's like an inflation of the personality and it's almost this better than thou experience because I've had this divine revelation or I, I'm this divine light being or, you know, these things get, that get perpetuated and I think it casts a large shadow. It's, it ca- casts a shadow of darkness, of evil and, you know, you can call yourself a spiritual light being but like if you aren't being inclusive of of different parts of the totality of experience, I think we should question that too. So I think that without limits, we have a propensity, a unique human propensity to identify with the gods and over-identify with the gods and then get possessed by them unconsciously. So anyway, that's my soapbox about cultural inflation. <laughs> I feel like, Danielle, if you would be agreeable to this, we have to have you back. I would love to (laughs) continue our conversations because, well, what's a conversation if we don't dive into the realms of the gods and goddesses? (laughs) There's just so much information. You're truly intriguing, and we definitely would love to have you back. Um, I'd love to hear what your key takeaway is for the human experience To really, I know this is a real, this is a, this is a loaded question for our listeners, just to hear, you know, you've got a lot of experience. You've seen a lot through your work, through your education, now going through your PhD. What is some really nice tips, takeaways for our viewers just to, you know, live your life the most holistic approach, feeling your best, living your life. What is the best um, takeaways you can give our audience? Oh, wow. I think something that's coming to mind right now is that just because it's a quote-unquote symptom don't be quick to conquer the thing that might actually transform your life before you understand what it is. I think a lot of my experience has led me, it's it's a very humbling experience because you think you know what is happening or you think you know what something is and then you're like, can, that's maybe not what it is. But I think the process is about trying to create a relationship to that which you do not know. And so if we are quick to demonize those things that we have no idea what it is or what it's trying to do in our lives, I think we end up in pretty dark places without the support that we need. So yeah, I think that there's something there's something there about not being quick to cast judgment on the things that you do not know, whether it's within yourself or within other people. I'm just thinking about the pillars of like maybe the things that I embody in my life or what I try to like really embody in my containers and trying to be as non-judgmental as humanly possible. I know we're humans and we have judgments, but trying to suspend those and suspend that like rational knowing when we're being presented with irrational content, like just because it doesn't make sense to me now doesn't make doesn't mean it doesn't make sense fully um, in the totality of things. And so, yeah, and then also I think 
the whole work is about trying to increase your capacity, not to go on a, a tangent here, but I think that culturally, I think a lot of people have a lot of tolerance and they can tolerate a lot of stuff. And we've been taught to like push stuff down and just tolerate it and move forward and like that heroic mindset. And tolerance is not the same as capacity because capacity means that you have the space to hold and allow that integration to take forward and, and restore that expansion and contraction. And that's not inherent in tolerance. Tolerance, you can tolerate it and be incredibly contracted the whole time. So I think discriminating those areas is really actually important as well. So I think that's great takeaways for our audience. And it just, it really sits well um, meeting Jen so many years ago and just, we hike a lot. We chat a lot about life and, you know, we're both on the cheerleading side, you know, in our work, you know, go, go, go do well and looking at all the positives, but you know, like through both of your work, you really, um, teach holding that space for those, those hard times, those, those areas where we do maybe want to bury it because it's uncomfortable or it's fearful because it's the unknown and, and it's hard to digest or it's hard to understand mm -hmm. it and then even have the awareness, right? So through yeah. your work, it just sounds such, um, it's such a safe space to go to you and just have a look at what's going on in your life, you know, subconsciously or consciously and, and understand it more and have that respect. And I really, like, it's a blossom, right? You really look at that and you start to grow from working with you. I just, I think it's great work you do. Thank you so much. I think that there is a lot of darkness and evil in this world. And if we are not, maybe we shouldn't try to like vanquish it and like cast it out with goodness. Um, maybe we should learn to be in right relationship with that. Because I think that not a lot of people have a lot of capacity for darkness. And I feel like without the capacity to hold that, we make assumptions, we jump to conclusions, we move into spaces that aren't actually soul driven, they're egoically driven. And so, I mean, I am, I'm here for the, the rock bottoms and those are being crucified. Like that, that's my, that's my people. Like, I, the people who are like kind of getting pulled to the bottom of the well, like I really enjoy work with those individuals because to be able to shine like an inkling of consciousness in those places, I think has immense value throughout humanity. I, I truly believe that. And, you know, sometimes you don't even have to do anything or say anything but just to be in that space with somebody else and like someone is freaking out because they're in the bottom of the well and I can be there and say like, it's okay. Like it, it's genuinely okay. Like you're, we are going to be okay. Like let's be in this together. Just to, to hold that space is it, that's what it feels like I'm like here for is like that because not, not a lot of people have experienced that. And I got that when I was in the clinic and physical therapy, everyone, you know, I, I got synchronistically, I got the people who were like, you know, doctors think I'm crazy. And, you know, I've been to 10,000 different practitioners and it's like, all they need is someone to just be with them in their experience and say, it's going to be okay. We will be with this and it will change you. But my goodness, we got this. Yeah. We can do this. So yeah, it's it's really a gift of a lifetime, I feel like. It is a gift. It's helping people connect with information that's in the darkness where we usually try to tolerate and push away um, mm -hmm. and we miss parts of ourselves in doing that. So it's it's wonderful that you can hold such space and create such safe containers for people. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you, Danielle, for joining us. Passion makes things come alive. And I don't find it soapboxy. I think it's, 
hey, I've been there and I know the benefits of this. So, hey, if you're willing to listen, here I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really want to be an advocate for for that like unspoken voice of the body or the soul, that one that gets squashed out by science or medicine or gets squashed out by rationality. And I really want to be the advocate for that, that still small voice that's like, I'm trying, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm here. Because if you can like speak that language and you can learn to listen, it's always speaking. So. And it's such a small voice, but it's such an important voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The most important, actually. The most, right? <laughs> and we disregard it and shove it and bury it. And yeah. the incredible work you do. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you, guys. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Danielle. We look forward to having you back very soon.